Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex, and I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford Computer Science PhD and Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Today's episode is rather quite special. We have three MDs and Harvard MBA students who are pursuing careers outside the traditional career path. Suhas Gandhi, who's passionate about healthcare policy and innovation. Jordan Anderson, a resident physician at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, who has interned at the startup Belong Health and is passionate about innovative models of care delivery. And Lena Vadlamani, who's an MD-MBA candidate at Yale School of Medicine and HBS and Senior Manager of Strategic and Clinical Initiatives at Latina, which is a company innovating in senior care. She's passionate about value-based care, digital health, and primary care innovations for vulnerable populations. Suhas, Jordan, and Lena, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So guys, the first question is aimed at all of you together. So let's start with Lena. Lena, can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood and what made you choose a career in medicine in the first place? Sure. Um, I think for me, cheesily enough, I was stereotypical little bookworm. And for me, I loved stories. I loved people. I loved the, the process of getting to understand how what made people tick. My mom was also a physician, and I got to see how much of her job as an ophthalmologist involved those stories, but also uh, she was able to have much more impact on people's stories than most people I knew and found a lot more meaning in her job. And so I think medicine was on my shortlist from the beginning. Um, but I will say it took me a little time in college to decide whether or not I wanted to fully commit to medicine because I felt like the more doctors I spoke with, um, very few felt like their day-to-day practice actually involved as much human-centeredness as they had been pitched when going into the field. And so I think that's where I got interested in physician plus pathways that sort of allow you to impact both system as well as practice. Yeah, that's very helpful insight. Thanks, Lena. And I I like how you put it, physician plus pathway. I'm going to use that from now on. I think that a lot of people, you know, for different reasons, but a lot of people, when they get into medicine, they realize that they either want to have a broader impact or they're not connecting with patients because of all of the administrative stuff that's happening in clinical medicine that they may want to move into physician plus uh, lanes, as you said. The next question is for Suhas. Yeah, Suhas, thanks again for joining us. And thank you, Lina, for sharing that. Suhas, I know that healthcare policy and innovation are very important to you. You've done some really interesting work at the Senate, uh, at the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services, and at the Brookings Institute. And you've done also some VC work. And in that sense, you've done some work both on the public and private side. I was recently reading Uncontrolled Spread by Scott Gottlieb. And in his book, he talks about the importance of the collaboration, the close collaboration between the public and private sector and responding to healthcare emergencies and having really resilient healthcare systems, be it during pandemics or in global health in general. So I'm curious to know your thoughts. Do you agree? And if so, how do you think the public and private sectors can learn to communicate, work effectively together? Pretty much what's your mental model to think about this? 
Well, thanks, Shad and Alex, for for having me. Um, that is uh, a beast of a question, um, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to answer that because you're right. I spent a, a lot of time in the public sector. I want to spend um, part of my career in public service, but um, of course, so much of healthcare is is delivered in private settings. Um, and I'm currently in business school, so I'm sort of at this interesting intersection. Um, my sort of mental model is that the public sector sets the goalposts. Um, they craft the incentives that each player in the private sector will face. And then each private organization sort of plays the game as best they can within those goalposts that are, that are set by government. I think what's interesting is that in healthcare, the government not only sets the incentives, but is among the biggest players in the game, especially on the payer side in the form of Medicare and Medicaid, but also on, on the provider side. Um, but, but you know, from that mental model, I think, you know, the outcomes that we care about are a result, you know, whether it's cost, access, quality, equity, you know, the result of how well the government set the incentives and set the constraints, how well it enforced them and, and how the players decided to play the game. Um, and there's examples where that worked really well. And there's examples where it worked pretty poorly and very well intentioned changes and in incentives have backfired uh, and led to, to worse outcomes. Um, and maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit more later. To, to your point about, you know, public-private collaboration in healthcare, um, I think one of the best ways or, or the best models I've seen for that has been having cross-trained professionals, has having, you know, real leaders in healthcare spending some of their time in the public sector and some of their time in, in the private sector. And I think um, that, and that's, you know, par- partly why I'm, I'm here doing an MBA so I can sort of speak the right language and, and be an effective agent at that at that intersection. Um, to your point about Scott Gottlieb's book, you know, I've been reflecting a lot more during the pandemic on how our public health systems at local, state and national levels uh, collaborate with private healthcare provider systems. And I think that's probably the area where I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in the future. I'd say, you know, the last decade, a lot about the incentives that I spoke about earlier, value-based care, et cetera. But, you know, from this foundation of the pandemic and this like unprecedented collaboration between local public health departments and local hospitals during the pandemic, I think that intersection is going to be the foundation for a lot of value generation over the next uh, decade. Um, and so assuming we, we seize this moment, which I hope we will. Yeah, thanks a lot, Suhas. So our next question is for Jordan. So Jordan, similar to Suhas, you've been active in numerous areas outside of the sort of traditional uh, clinical or research career path, like your work with Mission Point Health Partners, now Ascension Care Management, and your recent work with Belong Health. So please tell us a little bit about the work that you've done recently and what got you interested in delivering high-quality healthcare to vulnerable patient populations. Yeah, so um, so so I think kind of going back a little bit to where kind of Lena took us, which was kind of her decision to to want to go to medicine. When I was in college, I um, I similarly was was very interested in wanting to to sort of uh, use my career and my um, uh, ambitions to serve others and serve my community. And um, and I also um, really kind of fell in love with physiology during uh, during a one sort of remarkable class when I was in undergraduate, and I was going through that around the same time that I was doing some shadowing at a um, at a rural hospital uh, with a hospitalist. And you know, I think the the sort of realization for me during a lot of that experience was um, that so much of what brought many of the patients into the hospital that we would round on um, often had very little to do with their, you know, with the, the biology of their disease. It often had more to do with a lot of the social conditions that they lived in. And, um, 
and, and with, uh, you know, their ability to access medication and to, you know, get rides to their uh, medical appointments. And so, um, you know, I think kind of seeing that, you know, kind of this fascination with like the, the, um, the clinical side of medicine, but then also with sort of the social side of medicine, this was all kind of happening around the time that the Affordable Care Act was being passed. So I graduated from college in 2010 and, and just got very interested in, in this kind of transfer transformation that was happening at both a policy level, um, but then uh, but then also through sort of the reorganization and some of the new financing mechanisms that were coming into medicine. And so um, Mission Point Health Partners was a, a startup that uh, was a subsidiary within Ascension Health. And, um, and so for listeners, Ascension Health is one of the largest not-for-profit health systems in the country. And so they were really trying to, to better understand, um, you know, how how to deliver higher quality care for lower cost within some of these new um, value-based uh, payment mechanisms that were being brought about uh, in conjunction with the Affordable Care Act. And so uh, one of the main things that we were doing at Mission Point was building out a Medicare accountable care organization for about 50,000 Medicare patients in the middle Tennessee area. Um, and so we were um, you know, using a lot of population level analytics to better understand uh, sort of where our kind of highest risk members were and where some of our most vulnerable patients were, and then really kind of targeting higher touch uh, models of care um, using uh, nurses and advanced practice providers and social workers to really try to get upstream and be more proactive around how we manage chronic disease. Um, and so that really, I think, kind of took me behind this, you know, kind of behind the curtain of how our healthcare system worked. And I, I got a lot of exposure to, uh, to sort of how um, payers, how uh, providers think about these things and sort of how this shifting uh, incentive framework was was playing out. And so um, I did. I worked there for two years and, and really became very passionate about this. And then came to medical school and was able to con- to continue to 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 study and work in this area with uh, with the population health management group at Partners Healthcare um, and, and have done some research around this. And then um, and then continued into residency and, and really I think from a clinical standpoint found a, a lot of um, fulfillment and, and clinical enjoyment in taking care of higher risk uh, patient populations with, with, uh, with multiple chronic illnesses. And so that's really what uh, led me to Belong Health, which is a startup that I uh, ended up working with um, this past summer, which is really focused on providing um, a, a higher, higher service level, uh, higher quality of care for um, older, lower income patients. So patients who qualify both for Medicare and for Medicaid. Um, in, in sort of the industry speak, they're often referred to as dual eligible patients. And so um, Belong is really trying to, to provide a differentiated, better model of care for, for that patient population. Jordan, that's incredibly helpful. And thanks for sort of giving us an arc as to why you became interested in all of these other things. You used an interesting term. I think you called it the social aspect or the social side of medicine. You can also expand that to you know the business side of medicine. I just had a quick follow-up question. Do you think medical students now at medical schools nowadays do a good job of teaching the non-clinical social side or the business side of medicine? Or do you really have to be as proactive as you were to go outside of what's usually taught in those classrooms to get that exposure? And what advice would you have for folks who are trying to get that exposure but can't get it in their medical school curriculum? 
I think I, I guess I think of them as slightly as, as two slightly different things. I think that uh, many medical schools are trying to incorporate more um, more teaching and learning around. Uh, you know, I think the kind of common parlance is sort of social determinants of health or uh, unmet social needs, um, and I think there's a real uh, recognition that that um, that there's a very tight you know associations between these things and actual you know health outcomes, and so I think there is. Uh, greater recognition within, uh, especially undergraduate medical curricula, to incorporate this type of learning. Um, you know, I think that um, I, I think on the on the sort of business healthcare system side of things, I think there's probably still some some catch up work to do there uh, in terms of medical curricula, sort of providing medical students with a uh, you know a real understanding of the actual industry that they're entering as professionals. Um, and I think some medical schools probably do it better than others, but in terms of resources that people can um, can use to sort of learn more, so there's definitely lots of uh, sort of academic publications that that uh, that provide research in these areas. So things like areas like Health Affairs and the uh, JAMA Health Forum, NEJM Catalyst. Um, but then beyond that, there's a lot of great podcasts and other resources that um, that, that people can use like this and, and like others where um, where that, that's been a lot of the learning that I've had outside of my own academic program. Awesome. No, thank you, Jordan, for that. And I, I think it's really interesting to look at what's happening in healthcare and how what you've mentioned and, and perhaps Chad's question relates to the point mentioned by Suhas that we really need people with a multidisciplinary uh, experience in, in healthcare today. And I think this is the topic of my question to you, Lena. So Lena, you've, you have a wide variety of experiences really under your belt from your work with Augmedics and Collective Health. You've had leadership roles at free clinics at Stanford and Yale and to your current role with Patina, which is doing some really interesting work with, uh, with elderly care. Previously, the career trajectory of medical doctors used to be very linear. Like you finish medical school, you do residency, and then you practice medicine. Today, that's not necessarily the case. So I'm curious how you're looking at your career as an MD after medical school. Do you view it as a linear path or do you view it as a multidisciplinary path where you will follow wherever uh, your passion, where impact uh, takes you? So keen to know your thoughts on this. Yeah, thank you for that question. It's such a integral question essentially the, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up after you've spent this much time training and accumulating experiences? And uh, I think my approach has very much been that healthcare is those really interesting fields where it spans everything. Like care spans technology, it spans people, it spans delivery, it spans investing. And my early thesis was it's better to have range and diversity in experiences before landing too deeply on one of them. I think it helps you be more informed in ultimately what you actually want to do. It also gives you better perspective, the ultimate deeper dive path that you pick. But also to the point around where I see career going, I think the the value of a healthcare career is that you can see it going in waves. There might be times where you sp- you focus on clinically practicing the landscape of healthcare changes. You get an opportunity to work with a company for five, 10 years. Maybe you go from there to investing and each of those experiences builds a sure base that you can draw from in order to drive value. But personally, I found my area that I'm starting to develop into a niche to be primary care innovation. I think I had always been interested very much along the lines of 
what Jordan was saying around um, delivering care to underserved populations. I started as a global health policy undergrad and uh, realized that I was very passionate about finding access. And over time, that's expanded to how can we use digital means in order to get that access to people. And I think that now, post-pandemic, we are in this wormhole to the future where in the course of a year and a half, we are thinking about healthcare so differently in terms of access and what access means and the availability of care. And so I'm, I've been really excited about working with Patina. We do home-based and um, virtual care for seniors. And so, you know, broadly defining vulnerable populations, seniors are a large chunk of underserved as well as um, a huge part of our health system and a huge sort of, you can think of as cost driver, but at the end of the day, it's it's like misused resources because we're not addressing social determinants of health. Um, and I think that medical curriculum question was really interesting to me because that is very much tied, right? Like you can't really teach about social determinants of health and the cost of healthcare in two different silos when they're so integrally connected. Um, and my thought when Jordan was speaking was, you know, it's so helpful to have these resources and podcasts and role models out there who are doing different things outside of healthcare, the physician plus pathway. But I think it's also way more important to get hands-on experience. Like, you know, all of us here have done to just take that time to do an internship, maybe take a break from research, define what it means to be doing additional value-adding work as a medical student outside of the confines of publications. I think that's a really important part of how medical education is is transitioning into the future. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point, Lina, and thank you for your answer. I think I wanted to follow up on uh, your point on digital health and digital innovations in, in general in primary care. And I think it's not only important to, I think, to address underserved populations in the U.S., perhaps, or in high-income countries, but it also offers massive potential to meet the healthcare needs in areas in low-middle-income countries. You don't have the density of providers that you have here, for example. I think the, the digital approaches are, are really interesting, and I'm always very interested in terms of what's happening there and how can we use all these digital approaches to scale. So thanks for providing that insight. Uh, over to you, Shad. Thanks, uh, Lena and Alex. So the next question is for all of you. We'll start with Suhas. So we're all about to graduate from HBS in about six months. I know that sounds crazy, at least to me, but you know, just give us a sense of why you decided to spend two years of your life, or for the MD MBAs, it's more like a year and a half of, of your lives at HBS, and what has been your most distinct memory, Suhas? Yeah, um, you know, I've been reflecting as I've been listening to um, Jordan and Lena about you know, sort of this like what we have in common amongst those of us who have you know aspired to this physician plus archetype and i think you know at some point there was some exposure to the idea that so much of what comprises health is not delivered by the healthcare system in its current form and for me that exposure came as an EMT in my hometown in virginia where you know we would sometimes be called to folks who you know we they would need to go to the hospital and we'd be you know, ready to transport them, but 
they'd refuse to be transported because, you know, the cost of care would be too much and they knew it could bankrupt them. And so that they would re- refuse transport. And so I sort of got this dual exposure to kind of, you know, the joy of being able to take care of people at their time of need, but also these sort of structural barriers. And so ever since then, I've always known, you know, the relevance of, of business, of cost, of, you know, the financial calculus of our healthcare system to people's health and to our ability to help them improve their health um, and protect it. And so I think that's kind of why I've always been interested in this physician plus path. And the MBA in particular is, is a part of, it's a part of that, you know, approach. My distinct memory, you know, there's, there's so many, I think I'll pick one that's sort of topical to, to what I just said. We had a healthcare case in one of our, you know, first year classes um, about hospitals and an issue came up during the case about, you know, what, how the hospitals were um, bargaining with uh, insurance companies. And I made, you know, a very um, vehemently um, articulated point around price inflation and how hospitals have incredible bargaining power and how the markets have really broken down. And, you know, really, you know, this negotiation that we're talking about in this case doesn't matter because they just have so much leverage in the negotiation that they're going to have all the power. And then I got in a, you know, a pretty heated argument with one of my section mates um, after class, someone who with the private equity background, who had worked in the healthcare space. And um, I was very sort of um, adherent to this, the prevailing academic narrative around, you know, hospitals have all the power and they set the prices. And she was trying to explain to me how, you know, the negotiation is much more complex than that. It's not just about your market power. It's also about all these other levers and all these other things that matter to patients, to the local ecosystem. And it comes down to two people in a room, um, two groups of people in a room who are are making decisions. And so it just helped me appreciate the nuance um, of being in a system where, you know, economic theory doesn't predict all outcomes, but rather, you know, the, complex interactions between very complex businesses and organizations that fundamentally are run by people um, is, is worth appreciating and, and helped sort of expand my, um, my, my worldview about the problems, but also about how we might start to solve them. Thank you, Suhas. That's a great and very vivid story. I'm just picturing you just in a shouting match outside of a classroom in Aldridge uh, with one of your classmates. And I love that memory. I'm just going to go with it. But uh, Jordan, over to you. You know, Why did you decide to spend a couple of years here at HBS and what has been your most distinct memory? Well, I, I would probably I would really echo a lot of what of what Suhas just said in terms of um, you know the opportunity that's available at HBS. I think just to to add maybe maybe two additional pieces. I think um, you know one would be just the tremendous opportunity to see uh, parallels of issues that we're facing in the healthcare system in other industries and in other contexts, and and. I think that's one of the main values of the case method is that it, it really takes you inside, um, you know, the, uh, the the world of other of other industries, of other businesses, of other uh, leaders to really kind of think through um, to really think through kind of the, the challenges that they're facing. And, and I think that we've seen that, um, you know, it, I've seen that in a number of different cases, kind of where there's great healthcare parallels and where there's uh, ways to kind of think about problems in a new way. Um, I think also, uh, you know, in this kind of this tags into to probably one of my um, one of my favorite moments. I uh, was recently in a um, in my entrepreneurial finance class. We had uh, we did a case on Iora Health, which is um, a company that 
you know, have a lot of respect and admiration for. I think they've, they've really done some, um, you know, important work in the, in the world of sort of advancing primary care in many of the ways that Lena was talking about earlier. And, um, and it was, it was really fun because we were, we, uh, the, the CEO of the company, Rashika Fernanda Pule, was, uh, was in the class. Um, and I had actually written a, a article about um, Iora and sort of this new model of venture-backed primary care um, when I was a, a first-year medical student. Um, and, uh, and so it was really fun to get to kind of uh, connect with him. And, and uh, as some of the listeners probably know, Iora recently uh, had a major acquisition. And, and so, it, you know, there, we're kind of now standing like five years after I published this article and sort of seeing the the opportunity for a company like this and for the innovation, um, uh, you know, within our healthcare system, um, really driven by, um, you know, someone who had kind of ideas outside of the box to, to really try to um, innovate in our healthcare system. And so I think um, that sort of um, opportunity within HBS, I think, is, is very eye-opening, um, being able to spend time here and see the opportunity to um, to use all these experiences that, that we've gained across clinical domains to then uh, leverage and hopefully, you know, bring impact to our communities and to the healthcare system at large. Perfect. Thank you, Jordan. Over to you, Lena. Yeah, I resonate so much with that. I was in the class with that Jordan just mentioned and working in primary care. It was uh, definitely a surreal moment to think of a business school elevating primary care innovation in a finance class. It was a convergence of worlds that I hadn't necessarily anticipated. But um, for me, the decision to business school was, I think, twofold. One was the what Jordan was referring to is being able to draw from other industries and apply them to healthcare. Um, but I think, secondly, it's also just being a lot more methodical about thinking about leadership um, and what that means and what it means to innovate in such a complex system. There is some parallels you can draw from other industries, but healthcare is really its own beast. And the question is, like, what fundamentals can you take from management theory into a system like this? And for me, that takeaway has been, interestingly enough, a lot more in the domain of marketing and product than it has been in anything else. And um, coming into business school, I thought of marketing as advertising and have learned a lot more about it being a deep understanding of who your customer is and targeting and building products that really speak people. And I think we inherently understand it as clinicians that everything you do is about the patient in front of you. And then the minute you abstract out of a clinic, the system completely loses it. I remember working at Code Health and part of my job was people calling in saying, hey, I just got charged $20,000 for something that should have been $20, fix it. And like there is a point at which the system forgets to understand how individuals are impacted. And so I admitted about trying to take that moment of putting the patient at the center of the narrative and the like customer centricity that comes with business school and leader and abstracting it out. So for me, I'd have to say my moment was sitting in marketing class. My first semester, we had a case on um, uh, a baby food product and what, like what channel it should be distributed through, whether it should be distributed through like physicians 
offices versus direct to consumer. And I remember just having a clear thought as a doctor being like, I don't want to tell people what to feed their babies. Like this is not a healthcare issue. This is a, a, a consumer issue. And so I think trying to develop thinking of what does it mean to be a consumer in healthcare. Thank you, Lena. That's incredibly insightful. And I, and I echo everything that you guys just said. I think for me, it's been a lot of the things that I have read about, you know, I would be reading as a medical student or as a surgery resident, whatever little time I had, but I'd be reading Professor Herzlinger's work or Michael Porter's work. And here at HBS, you have direct access to those people to the point where I'll be taking a course with Michael Porter over a short course over in January. And so I think that's been the access to just world-renowned folks uh, who are top of their field has been really, really important to, to someone like me. So next question is for everyone. Over to you, Alex. Yeah, thanks, Chad. And uh, thank you, Lina, Suhas, and, and Jordan. Great, great points. And maybe I just wanted to follow up on your point, Jordan. I think it's a really interesting idea to learn from other industries and bring the, the learnings from other industries into healthcare. And especially if we think about innovation, like so much of innovation is bringing solutions from a different discipline to the discipline that you have at hand. So, so I think that's a really great point. I want to drive the conversation perhaps to, to the topic of mentorship. And this question is for all of you, really. Most of our guests talk about how important overall mentors play in their life. So did you have any special mentors in your life? And perhaps if you could speak to us, how did those mentors help you realize your goals and plan your trajectory moving forward? So perhaps let's start with you, Jordan. Over to you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I um, have been very fortunate to have a number of, of, of really fantastic mentors across, you know, various different domains. I mean, I, I think just even like kind of from a personal, you know, values perspective, like obviously my, my parents are some of my biggest uh, sort of role models and mentors in terms of, I think, who I am and how I think in terms of my value system and work ethic and things like that. But I think, you know, from a professional perspective, um, you know, someone who was very influential uh, fairly, um, you know, when, when I was in medical school was um, Dr. Sri Shagaturu, who was, uh, he was the, at, at the time, the VP of Population Health at Partners. And so uh, in between my first and second year of medical school, I did an internship um, with him and, and he really, uh, you know, kind of brought me, uh, you know, inside and really kind of helped me to understand um, sort of how the various different stakeholders um, within the healthcare system think about, um, you know, think about how uh, how you create value, um, and and then how that how that sort of um, flows throughout, you know, a whole health system. And and so I think um, he he's remained a very uh, uh, strong mentor and someone that that I've leaned on for advice many times. Um, you know, I think from uh, from a clinical perspective, once I entered residency, you know, you, your sort of mentor. Uh, pool expands not just to sort of professional mentors, but also into, uh, you know, into clinical mentors and people you really look to, uh, you know, in, in terms of how to better practice medicine. And, and so I think at least at, at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I'm a resident in internal medicine, there's been a number of, of, uh, of clinicians that I've um, really looked to and, and found a lot of um, uh, you know, found, found to be great mentors, um, uh, people like Lisa Rosenbaum, um, uh, obviously Joel Katz, who's the, the program director there, Ralph Blair is an amazing hospitalist, uh, that I think many of us uh, look up to in many ways. Um, and, and so I think that, um, you know, I, 
my mentor network, I think, has grown uh, a lot even since uh, coming into residency, um, given all the physicians that we interact with in the hospital. That's a really great point, uh, Jordan. I remember our conversation with Sachin Jain recently, and he told us that his perspective on mentorship is that you start as a mentorship, but then you become friends with your mentors. And I think having the ability to develop that relationship and really learn from their experiences is, is something that's that's incredibly valuable. Over to you, Suhas. Yes, similar to Jordan, I've been really, really lucky to have just phenomenal mentors to whom I attribute, you know, any professional success I have or ever will have um, because of how supportive they've been um, of me. I'll start with a personal mentor the way the way Jordan did. My grandfather is was, uh, you know, just a really phenomenal um, physician and leader um, in his community in, in, a, in a city in southern India um, and was just, you know, like a pillar of our family, but also just a pillar of the whole community, just took care of people for very little money every day, people like working class families who didn't have other options and did that, you know, every day for, you know, 50 plus years um, and continued working during COVID um, against all of our, um, you know, hopes that he, that he wouldn't because he just knew that people, people needed him. Um, and that work ethic, that you know, passion, that commitment is why I became a doctor at, at kind of the most fundamental level. And I still sort of try to embody those, those values. On, on the professional side, um, I was really lucky to early on connect um, with Kavita Patel. I was at CMS, which I think someone mentioned before, um, doing an internship um, on, you know, some, because this is the federal government, on some sub-team within some team within a division, within a department, and, you know, was lost somewhere in this federal bureaucracy, um, but went to um, a meeting um, as part of that internship and saw that Kavita Patel was sitting at the table and saw that there was an MD after her name. So I went up to her afterwards and said, hey, I you know didn't know that physicians were involved in this kind of work. You know, I would love to chat. And turns out she's just, you know, a really phenomenal leader um, who was uh, a practicing primary care physician, but also played a critical role in health reform in the Obama White House. And ever since then, you know, that kind of chance one-off meeting, um, she's been a really great mentor, but also a sponsor for me um, in opening doors um, and is why I, you know, went to the Brookings Institution, a think tank later, and, you know, I've been able to um, sort of develop a foundation uh, in, in health policy. And so um, really appreciative of, of Kavita's support from the time I was I was in college. Thank you, Suhas. And thank you for telling us also about your grandpa. And I think, uh, I think as you've described him, I think his, you know, he gives the image of the medical doctor who's ingrained with humanitarian and empathic values that inspired a lot of us to go to go down this, uh, this career trajectory. So thank you for sharing that. Over to you, Lena. Thanks. Yeah, Suhas, love that image. Um, I think it's something that I resonate with because I'll continue the trend of personal and professional, but my mom is really one of the main reasons I became a doctor. And she was an ophthalmologist in South India. Um, and I know growing up, I would travel back with her to India and she would do missions and uh, rural villages. And that was my intro to what medicine looked like and what service looked like. And is also part of the reason that I feel like a medical career is not linear. She was a foreign medical grad, came to the U.S., did two separate residency, internal medicine and ophthalmology. And even in her 50s, did a med retina fellowship because she was ready to, you know, switch things up in her career and try something new for the time that she 
to want to practice. And so I think that's always been an inspiration to me. It's, it's never too late to try something new and take a risk. Um, on the professional side, again, a huge list of mentors that it's, it's hard to pick one or two, but um, I think one hugely influential person for me was uh, Dr. David Rosenthal at Yale. He was one of my um, first year small group uh, primary care leaders. And I connected with him after because I noticed that he had worked at IDEO. And he is a primary care physician at the VA, but also has had this long standing dual career as um, an innovator in healthcare from a design thinking perspective. And now is also a chief medical officer of a startup and really encouraged me to think outside of the lines of pure research and what we all define as what a medical student in their first couple of years should be doing and learning and really push myself to get new experiences. And so I'll be very thankful to him for that. Um, and then I, a, a huge other mentor in my life right now is Jack Stoddard of Patina. Um, I actually got involved with Patina because we got matched through the um, HBS Healthcare Initiative Alumni Match Program. Um, and he has honestly um, been teaching me how to lead with values and mission above all of the other things that we learn in business school. And I think that's something that is really important to remember and see and practice at, at some point in your career. Thank you, Lena, for sharing that. And similar to the story of your mom, I think the reason why I went into medicine, because I, I was also inspired by my dad, who was, who was an ENT surgeon, and, and, and my uncle, who was, was also a surgeon as well. So thank you for sharing that uh, the personal story. Those are great answers. And uh, over to you, Shad, for the next question. Yeah, thank you, Alex. And thank you, Lena, Suhas, and, and Jordan. Just some really touching answers and, and moments as I reflect on what you all have said. I think as I've spoken to a lot of people who we've invited on the podcast, regardless of whether they're you know only three or four years older than us or 20, 30, 40 years older than us, early in their career or late in their career, everyone has admitted that without very, very strong mentors, either personal or professional, they wouldn't be where they are. And a few people have even said that in some way, shape or form, their mentees have in another sense become their mentors as they've also sort of gone through certain points in their life and have become leaders in and of themselves. So I think having close mentors and understanding that sort of virtuous cycle is very, very important. Wanting to switch gears here a little bit, and, and this one's for you, Suhas. You know, in a recent interview we did with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, who's the author of An American Sickness, she expressed her frustration uh, at the merging of medicine and business with an increased emphasis on profit. So Suhas, as someone who's interested in using policy to change the American healthcare system, what do you feel is the mission of the profit motive in general in American healthcare? Like what role should it have and what role does it have? Yeah, it's a, thanks, Chad. It's a really good question. Um, I, you know, have a lot of respect for, for Elizabeth Rosenthal and, and, and thought her book was, was eye-opening in, in a lot of ways. I think the profit motive is an incredibly powerful tool to attract investments, to attract talent, to attract other resources, to solve really, really hard problems. And I think, you know, Jordan and Lena and the startups where they work are examples of this. They have world-class talent that they've in part been able to attract because of the 
enormous financial upside that exists to you know those sorts of, of startup uh, endeavors in a market where there's frankly a lot of dollars um, in in healthcare services and, and in payment. Um, I think that for that reason, many of us, I think the system and many patients benefit from the existence of a profit motive in healthcare and from the existence of a market based uh, system. I think, however, you know the the econ major in me knows that. You know, markets often don't work in healthcare, and that's one reason why profit motives can lead to suboptimal outcomes. You know, and there's so many reasons we can go through for why that is. You know, one classic sort of theoretical reason is information asymmetry. Um, you know, doctors know a lot more about what patients need than patients do. And so you have this issue where you can have supply-induced demand. You know, we can go through all these sort of, you know, market inefficiencies that exist that make it hard um, for markets to work. I think another one I would highlight is that in a lot of markets, hospital systems are dominant. This is something I alluded to before. And so those markets lack competition. And competition is one reason why markets work and, and you know, produce um, optimal outcomes for, for society. And so there's all these reasons why um, markets don't work as well as they could. I think for me, the way I sort of reconcile all of this is that it's helpful to think of you know, private organizations not as sort of robotic, you know, emotionless machines, but instead to remember that decisions are made by people and that when you have people like Jordan and, and Lena um, in leadership roles in private organizations, you know, especially people like them who are clinicians at heart, that you there's some degree of faith and trust that comes with that, that, you know, they that we can hope the profit motive is leveraged to maximize outcomes for patients, to put patients at the center and to protect their welfare um, instead of to, you know, take value from them or take value um, from society. I think ultimately the responsibility certainly lies with all of us in the healthcare system to make sure that um, patients are at the center. And that doesn't just include, you know, leaders in, organ in private organizations or leaders in, in government. Um, it really comes down to, you know, everyone from the front lines all the way up to um, the C-suite and all the way up to, you know, the, the leaders in, in the federal government to ensure that in this really, really complex system that we're not letting patients fall through the cracks. That's perfectly said, Suhas, and I would echo everything you said. I'm reminded of uh, a couple of discussions I had recently with two folks. One was Dan Lillenquist, who is the chief strategy officer over at Intermountain Healthcare and, and was actually a senator, a state senator in Utah. And uh, he started Civic uh, Scripts, uh, which is trying to sort of revolutionize how generic drugs are sourced through the GPO system. They've essentially vertically integrated Intermountain into a drug manufacturer as well as a drug sourcer, although it's not quite as inseparable from Intermountain anymore. They've sort of branched away. But he said something I thought was very interesting. He's very passionate about value-based healthcare and anchoring healthcare around individual patients. But he said, I've talked to so many of these players in the system, PBMs, you know, GPOs, payers. For the most part, there's no evil players. It's just structural misaligned incentives. When you talk to people at these places, they think they're doing the right thing. They just want a certain percentage of the profit. But on a more structural level, some of that goodwill actually does seem to break down. 
And Dan Gebramadin, who's a venture partner at, at Flare Capital, was uh, our first guest on our podcast. And he said the same thing. He used to work at a pair. And he says, I know these people. And for the most part, they're trying to do the right thing. It's, again, the, the structural incentives that are the most important to keep in mind. But like you said, there are certain limitations of the profit motive. And in those cases, it's important to know that there's uh, certain interventions, such as public and governmental interventions, that may be necessary. Moving on right now, uh, the next one's for Jordan, so I'll pass it over to Alex. Thank you, Shad, and uh, great discussion, great uh, point, Suhas. And j- just going back a couple of questions uh, above, I-, I like the way you defined it as the public sector kind of designs the game and its incentive, and the private sector plays within that. So, Jordan, this question is for you. You came to HBS as a father, and you have a second child on the way in January. Congratulations. Um, we recently spoke with HMS and HBS alumni, Claire Wagner, who works as the head of strategy at the Gates Medical Research Institute, which is the basically the biotech arm of the Gates Foundation. She was talking about her experience, the ups and downs of being a mother at HBS. It was a very inspirational and an impressive conversation. So I was wondering how was the experience of being a father at HBS and has it offered you any different perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I appreciate the question. And, and I think it's something that, um, that, you know, a number of people, whether, whether, you know, it's, it's folks who are in graduate school or who are in residency or going through, um, you know, I think, I think really the biggest, uh, the biggest component is, is that, um, you know, I think having, having kids during these stages is that it really kind of forces you to kind of identify some trade-offs and, you know, really, it really kind of forces you to, to kind of value your time a little bit differently. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, it, there's also just this kind of remarkable experience of, of being a parent and, and there's, uh, and that's just an incredible experience. And so, um, you know, I think if, if it, if it offers kind of a little bit of a different perspective, um, what I would say is that I think that it, um, it, it does kind of force you to, um, to understand, um, a lot of the experiences that many of our patients have, um, whether that's taking care of their own children or, um, or taking care of older, you know, parents that, um, you know, um, you know, I, I think the experience of being a caregiver and being, um, you know, sort of having the responsibility of another person, um, you start to realize that oftentimes you do put your own um, you know, some of your own, uh, uh, self-interest aside, right. And, and, you know, there's, there's actually quite a bit of research, uh, from, uh, kind of psychology and social sciences that, that people often will sort of, um, put their own self-interest aside, um, in, you know, in advancing the interest of a loved one. Um, and, and I think that, you know, then when you start to think about, you know, some patients who, you know, you continue to have issues with, you know, medication management or them, you know, uh, no showing to appointments and things like that. And then you recognize that they're taking care of, they're a single mom and they're taking care of three kids at home and they're trying to work like two jobs. It's like, yeah. Oh, I mean, of course you're like, like you're, you're, you know, taking your medications regularly is like last on your priority list. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that it, uh, I think just being a parent does kind of offer <clears throat> some of that perspective, but, um, you know, it, it's an incredible experience, and and um, and, and we're excited about um, about number two coming soon. Thank you, Jordan. That's really great, and I think I, I loved your point about uh, like keeping kind of the best intentions in mind and looking at the individual 
as an individual and considering all the different potential circumstances there. So, so thank you for sharing that. And I, I think one of the questions that maybe I follow up with a just to get a quick perspective from you is do you think we like institutions should create more support for uh, families and partners who are expecting within the context of MBA program or similar educational experiences? You know, I think I, I think that it's uh, I, I do think that we need to um, start to think about um, how we can create more flexibility for people to be able to, um, you know, to, to have families and continue to train in, um, you know, in whatever field they're going into. I think they're uh, at, at sort of a policy level, I think that there's conversations about this. And, you know, I think the U.S. is sort of the outlier compared to many other uh, developed countries in this respect. Um, you know, I, there, there's certainly a trade-off there um, in, in terms of, um, you know, how this is handled. And But, but I think at, at the same time, um, increasingly, at least from a medical perspective, people are, are often taking more time between when they graduate from college and when they start medical school, which, you know, when you kind of compound that with, uh, you know, kind of longer residency training periods that are happening, um, you know, people are just, you know, they're getting older as they're advancing through their, um, you know, their training. And we need to create uh, flexible pathways for people to be able to still you know, have families and have a personal life. Yeah, no, that's a really great point, Jordan. And I think I've seen a lot of people who say that they want to delay having kids until they're like in their mid thirties or so, just because they, they want to climb the career ladder, which is very demanding. And it doesn't give that flexibility, which you've mentioned. So I certainly appreciate that point. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Over to you, Shad. Great. So this one's for you, Lena. So after the concept of Value-based healthcare was introduced by Porter and, and Tysberg in, in 2006. You know, healthcare economists, some of them have described it as, quote, unquote, a utopian vision. And a survey conducted by the National Alliance of Purchaser Coalitions earlier this year showed that six out of 10 employers considered or engaged in a value-based design approach, which was largely due to the impact of COVID-19. And so, Lena, as someone who's very passionate about this model of care, how do you see its future in the American healthcare system? And how can providers use it to guarantee better outcomes for patients? Yeah, this is such an important question. I think value-based has been through its ups and downs, partly because we have, in my opinion, still not aligned on what value means. We have so many different levers of what the outcomes are. And there is patient experience metrics, there's cost metrics, there's actual clinical measurable outcome metrics. But at the end of the day, I think what we can align on is that the fee-for-service model is not working, and it's creating a system in which there are fundamentally misaligned incentives, and value-based care is the closest model we have to something that aligns incentives in a way that we can work with as long as we start putting some of these rails around it. And I think part of setting guardrails around it involves not trying to play two things at once. Like you can't play by the rules of two games in a system as, you know, Suas, you can't be, was alluding to, you can't be both fee-for-service and value-based care and expect to see the metrics that you need to prove that value-based care works. Um, and again, I think it comes down to people process and um, technology. And if you have this technological debt from being in a fee-for-service model, value-based care can't thrive. And so to your point about that second statistic, I do think we are seeing a lot more adoption of value-based care and that the 
we've reached the, the tipping point where there is enough out there to be able to be a lot more rigorous in the way that we implement and use analytics and technology in order to um, implement. I also think that there's a layer here in value-based care that elevates the patient. And I think what I'm really excited about is how we can address some of the I guess, information asymmetry from the other side of all the information that the patient has about their life and what's going on that's getting in the way of their health and utilize that to get to outcomes, which value-based care is designed to be able to let us do in a way that fee-for-service did it. Thank you, Lena. That's incredibly helpful. And I guess some things that make me a little bit bullish, I guess, on to, to use MBA term, on the concept of value-based healthcare is that these are things that my medical school friends and residency friends are actually starting to talk about and have been talking about for the last few years. Not a lot of sort of healthcare lingo from the MBA business space seeps into healthcare or clinical medicine in a robust way, but I think this has. And I think part of that is because Porter, for example, does a course on value-based healthcare for hospital executives and also does a course where there's residents and medical students. And, and so, and as someone, as, as you pointed out, whether it's NEJM Catalyst or some of the JAMA articles, there's a lot of work from clinicians on value-based healthcare that's coming out in the academic literature right now. So I think it's only going to grow. So we're here to our last question. This has been a fascinating conversation and, and a great conversation. And I think one that everyone will find incredibly helpful, but I'll hand it over to Alex for the last question. Yeah, no, thanks, Chad. And those are really great points on, on value-based care. And I think like the principle of like what you cannot measure, you cannot improve, like really stands here. And, it, and it's so important like to actually define the measures in the right way. And it seems we're, we're kind of reaching that critical mass for adoption. So that's all great. So my last question is open to everyone. Do you have any last parting advice to our audience members who may be interested in exploring a career in the world of behind clinical medicine? Any thoughts? Yeah, I would say do things. Um, and by that, I mean, there is this community of not just MD, MBAs, but physician plus phenotypes of people in every vertical of healthcare. And it's hard to understand what options are out there unless you do both the informational interview, but also spend the time, whether it's a couple of weeks as an internship, whether it's shadowing outside of the clinical context, shadow in a more like startup corporate context, get actual work. It doesn't have to be deep and meaningful in one particular area, just samples so that you have an understanding of what's out there for you and you know whether this is something you want to commit to. Awesome. No, thank you, Lena. That's a great point. Jordan, do you have anything to, to add over to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, Lena's spot on. I think just like maybe maybe uh, one other thing would be, uh, well, I think one comes back to the, the mentor question you asked earlier, which is, you know, really try to find people who are doing jobs that you think would be really interesting and then just trying to kind of pick their brains and understand um, you know, uh, what that really is like and what some of the more challenging parts of, of their role look like and what more of the, you know, kind of intellectually stimulating and interesting parts look like. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that especially, uh, at least for me, kind of once I got into residency, um, you know, you're, you're often surrounded by people who, um, who are, are going down a more traditional, um, kind of, uh, clinician path. 
And I think it can be, especially when you're kind of surrounded by such a strong peer group um, that are all following a more kind of trodden path um, to sort of veer off into the weeds and the brambles of, of this type of kind of career path can feel a little bit, you know, both risky and also sort of unfamiliar and scary. And I think that um, to the extent that you can find other people who um, have similar interests or interested in, in kind of similar career paths, finding some solidarity and some community in that I think can be really powerful. And then, and then also I think just uh, really, um, you know, trying to find the, the confidence that, that, that this is, this is where you feel like you can have a, a great impact. Um, I think that's, uh, that's what I would say. That's a great point, Jordan. And I think this is actually just building on your point. This is our main motivation behind creating this, this podcast, because we want to make the the stories of medical doctors who have succeeded outside traditional clinical medicine more widely available to everyone. So we want to provide these role models and make them more accessible. So that's a really great point. Last but of course not least, Suhas, do you have any points to add to this question? Well, I, I totally agree with um, what Lena and, and Jordan said, especially this piece about, you know, people are are the folks who, you know, it's, it's really people who um, inspire us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do and, and to go off the beaten path. And so I, I really echo that, that point about people. I guess the, the new thing I would add is I think you have to do something that both your heart and your mind is in. And I think, you know, the, in the stories we heard today, you know, your heart can be in, in so much of clinical medicine. And of course, your, your mind can be as well. But, you know, I think we often try and force fit our, you know, intellectual interests into what we think the intellectual interest has to be for the, for that path with, in this case, clinical medicine. But if you're interested in economics, if you're interested in anthropology, if you're interested, like, like whatever gets you going, there's a home for that within, within and tangential to medicine. And there's so much to be done, so much value to be created, so much impact to be had at those intersections. For me, it was economics. When I took that freshman class, I was, I, this, is, this is how I like to think. And so I just pursued that. And then that's how you know, I got interested in the sort of work that I do today. But you know, whatever it is, you know, you know, apply what, what, where your mind's at, but then combine it with where your heart's at. That's a really great point, Suhas. I think it just goes to the point that there is no way to make impact on healthcare, right? So certainly appreciate you sharing that. This has been an amazing conversation. So thank you so much, Lena, uh, Jordan, and Suhas. Really, really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm sure the, the audience would enjoy it as well. So really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you again for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Take care. Fantastic conversation today. Really, really enjoyed chatting with some Harvard MBA students one of whom is a doctor and a resident, Jordan Anderson, and two of whom are still medical students, one at Yale, one at Harvard Medical School. It was just very enriching conversation. Three people who are very, very passionate about venture, having a dual career, not only in clinical medicine, but also off the beaten path and just bringing very eclectic background to our discussion today. You know, to our audience members, let us know how you like this particular format. I know it's a little bit different from what we usually do. Um, so if you enjoyed hearing from students and this panel format, let us know and we'll do another one in the future. That ends our episode today. Join us for our next episode where we'll continue having these enriching discussions with medical docs who have achieved tremendous success outside traditional clinical and research paths. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
and to catch our latest episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or you can visit us at potbppodcast.com. See you next time. Bye.